continuing this series we're calling Words Create Worlds. And um, just if there was any confusion, um, this is not a um, health and wealth kind of prosperity and gospel name it, claim it type series. Um, I had somebody ask me that. They said, so you're saying like, you know, we, do, we just pray for a new car and we'll get one, right? And I was like, no, I don't think that's exactly what we mean. No, they didn't actually say that, but they were hinting it that it could sound like that. And I want to be really clear. That's not what we're getting at this morning. But what we are getting at this morning is this idea that the words that we have been given are an absolute gift, right? The ability to speak these words that God has blessed us with, and when we see them for what they are, it really changes the way we steward them. It changes the way we feel responsible for them. And I say this because sometimes we need to be reminded of things, and today I really want us to be reminded of the gift of our words. And it's so easy to take things for granted in this world, isn't it? Like for those of you that, that live here, you know, we joke about this a lot that like sometimes we, we, we say it's been a couple months since we've been to the beach, right? Because the traffic gets bad or whatever. And then there's like some of you are in here on vacation. You're like, what's wrong with these people, right? Like there's this sense of like, it's this huge, beautiful, wonderful gift right there. And then we just kind of like get used to it. And then it becomes normal really, really quickly. For some of us, the same thing happens with relationships, right? We have these wonderful relationships. We got family, we got friends, we got people around us. And we, you know, we love them dearly, but we, we kind of start to take it for granted. And then when we lose somebody that's really close to us, we realize what a gift it is to have the people around us. And when we get that right, you know, we're not as mad at them for making us late for church this morning, right? Like we're not as mad at them when they, when they said something that we didn't love or when they used the last bit of milk on the cereal and didn't ask you if you wanted to share it, right? Like those little things just don't become as big of things when we really understand the value and the gift that they are. The same thing happens with technology, right? Like yesterday, um, my wife was making some banana pudding because it's 4th of July and that's what you do on the 4th of July, right? Even though she's vegan and doesn't even eat it. She's just like, I feel like we should do this. I don't know. And so she makes it for us every time. And um, so we're at the grocery store and I didn't want to screw it up. And she had sent me with, um, you know, this grocery list and it had one thing on there. I wasn't sure about what it was. And so I grabbed my phone and I FaceTime her and I'm like, is this like the right one, right? And so in that moment you say, well, yeah, that's obvious. But we think about that, like that's like Jetsons type stuff, right? The fact that like I can just be in the grocery store, grab my phone, video my wife and just say, hey, is this the right food? And she's like, yeah. And I swipe my credit card and we have enough money. We just go home and we make these things, right? Like it's really just generations ago, just a few generations ago, how different of an experience that would have been, right? And we get blessed with all this technology and we're just like, ah, the Wi-Fi isn't strong enough, right? And like we we don't care anymore of like the, the gift that it all is. Like we just see the tiny piece that we don't necessarily feel like is going the way that it should. And we get fixated on that and it begins to dictate our words, right? Travel is another place where we begin to take things for granted. Ra- quick raising of hands. We're going to do a couple of raising hands today. Didn't realize it till the last service that we're going to do it like three times, but um, raise your hands if you've left the country before. Right? Like most of us have left this country before, right? And you go back just a couple generations ago, and that was not the story, right? Like most people would just kind of be around the village, however far they could walk, that's how far they would go. And here we get the opportunity to go and just see creation all over the world and understand the perspective of the bigness of God in so many ways through the things that we've been gifted to see, right? And that, that's new, right? Like that's not every generation's story. And so here we get that opportunity, and for a lot of us now, we're like, oh, the air airports are miserable, right? Like there's just a sense of like, we have this huge gift and we get fixated on these little things. Somebody said it like this one time. They said, we have a cup that is overflowing. And instead of focusing on what's overflowing, we get really frustrated that our cup's so small. 
right? And so how do we get this perspective of bigger, wider open eyes that open our eyes to the goodness of God that we just sang about this morning? And when we see the bigness and when we see the goodness of God, it begins to shape how we respond to the things around us. It begins to shape the way that we see things because we talk about the things we see. And when we see that there's not enough, we talk about how there's not enough. But when we see there's more than enough and we see the abundance that God has given us, like that's what we begin to talk about and speak about. And so it's so important that we understand these things. And when we understand our words and when we really get to understand that these are a gift and we understand that the words that we've been given are so unbelievably unique to us as people created in the image of God, I think it shapes the way that we steward them, the way that we feel responsible for them. And so I want to just take a few minutes and just walk through kind of beginning to the end of scripture and just get some quick highlights about this idea of words and the role that they play in the whole gospel narrative from beginning to end. Because we can start in Genesis where God says, let there be light. And he literally creates the world with his words. God uses language, this this guy Jonathan Merritt wrote this paragraph and I thought it was so good. He says, God uses language to form seaweed and sunflowers, caterpillars and cats, riptides and meteors. But God didn't stop there. With a whisper, humans arise from dirt and divine breath inflates their lungs. Right here, God gives us this gift. And Genesis tells us that we're created in the image of God. And so we say we're created in the image of God, and that means a lot of things to a lot of people. But one of the things that it means, right, is this, we have an ability to reason. We have an ability to obey a moral code. We have this right and wrong that's just an eight with us. Then when we see certain things, we look at them and we're like, that's just not right. And there's other things that when we look at them and we see them, we're like, that is just right. Like we get it and we see it, right? But another thing that I think our, our image of God that is in us is this thing that God has gifted us with words, that he's given us words and we're created in the image of a God who speaks. And so the first command given to humans is to formulate a vocabulary by assigning names to animals and objects, right? So we speak, but plants, insects, animals, they don't speak, right? Bees buzz around, other animals, you know, they make some noise when they're happy and things like that. They make noises when they're sad. But our words are really way beyond what we need to survive. They are not just functional. And we could talk like in front of the next hour about this idea, but the idea that like you look at ducks and they have webbed feet because it helps them get through the water, right? Birds, they need wings to fly. Frogs have tongues that help them catch bugs. But science has no real reason why we have words. It's not about survival, right? They're a gift. They're this unique thing that only we get. And our language is the greatest tool possessed by us and no other species has ever had words like ours and never will. See, God could have made us stone creatures, could have made us tree creatures, sea creatures, winged creatures. You fill in the blanks, but instead we're really speech creatures. Words are God's gift to us. And when we understand this, speaking them does not become just like FaceTiming in the grocery store. Oh yeah, it's just what we do. But when we really pause and we really look at the gift that they are, speaking becomes a sacred act. But it doesn't always seem that way, right? Even though our words can encourage the discouraged, even though our words can educate the uneducated, even though our words can bring hope to the hopeless, too often we settle for criticizing, complaining, and gossip. See, in the Old Testament, God sends order down to his people through the Ten Commandments. And as these words are spoken, it's this this ordering of society and what God's people were going to live like. And as we look at that, we see that there's a command about rest. There's a command about cheating on spouses. There's one command about stealing. There's one command about idols. But there's really two commands about words. 
right? He says, don't, don't slander your neighbor. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. No lying, slandering around them. Then this other one about not taking God's name in vain. And so we see like built into this idea is like words matter. Words are a big deal. Words shape the culture, the relationships, the people around us when we speak them. And so as the scriptures unfold, we begin to see somebody like King David who speaks these powerful words as he goes into battle with Goliath, right? But then after that, I think David had this unique understanding of the depth and power of words. And if you read through the Psalms in the middle of your Bible right there, right? 73 of the Psalms are David's words. It's like there's this sense that he just understood how words could magnify the goodness of God, how words could convey his despair, about how words could convey relationships, all these different things. And he puts such energy and effort into crafting these words that he knows create worlds. So when Jesus comes onto the scene later, right, one of the first things he says is that he is here to proclaim the good news, right? He's here to speak God. His ministry is saturated with words. Come, follow me. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Blessed are the meek. And with every proclamation, right, you see this idea that God opens doors. And get, when we look at this idea of Jesus speaking words, right, with every proclamation, closed doors are opened, lame legs dance, and blind eyes see. And Jesus tells us very clearly that we need to be accountable to our words. And then after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and this wind comes into these disciples in that upper room and it fills them with the Spirit of God where they go out and begin to speak these words in different languages, in different dialects, in different moments. And the phrase that they use in Acts, which is so good, he says, we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, they saw the goodness of God and they had to go and speak the goodness of God. But not only do we get to speak, right? Not only has our faith been built around powerful and intentional words, but today we gather on this 4th of July and we get to acknowledge the weight of this reality that we have freedom of speech, right? And sure, we we celebrate that as a country, but also like, do you ever think that like we get to celebrate that as children of God? We get to celebrate that God has basically given us the the all black Amex, right? It says like, you get as many words as you want to use on whatever you want. It's just an unlimited supply. You can say whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, to whoever you want. And when we realize the gift that we have been given in that, when we realize the sacred act of speaking for what it is, I think it changes the way that we use our words. It goes from something that we just have to something that maybe we need to be responsible with. It goes from something that just, you know, like, yeah, you know, that's, that's what it is, what it is, to be able to be able to get to a place where we say, no, th- this is not just normal and how it should be, but God has set us apart with these. God has gifted us with these words. And so how do we best use them to honor him? So with great freedom brings great responsibility, Right? In Galatians chapter five, you'll see this up on the screen. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And he says, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out and you will be destroyed by each other. And so this idea of indulge the flesh rather than serve one another. I think there's a lot in that. We're going to look at this in James chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there to James 3. But there's this sense that like when we speak these words, if we're not careful, if we don't steward them well, it's like our default mode seems to go to critical. 
And just in conversations I've had, my deal, understanding of human nature, right? That like we lean towards criticism. We lean towards seeing what's wrong. We lean towards, you know, gossip. We learn, we lean towards those things. And it takes this real intentionality and this real stewardship of our mouths to understand what we speak about and when. And so can we stay in awe of the reality that we've been given this gift? Can we see our words as sacred? Can we use them well because they're so unbelievably powerful? And so now if you have your Bibles, James chapter three, we're just gonna kind of walk through this passage. This is Jesus's brother, James, who's writing. And as he's writing these words, right, as we look at this, there's this sense that he just fully grasps the magnitude and the gift that they are. And so he goes on and he says, he starts talking about teachers and then he picks up and he says, we all stumble in many ways. Amen? Amen. We get like, I felt like that's more true than we just admitted there. We all stumble in many ways, right? Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. But when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. He says, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by this very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And so we pause there a minute, right? And we just look and we can understand that like, it's this really small part of our body, but it can change so much, right? And I imagine if we were to all circle up and have small group time and say, hey, tell us about one of some of the hardest seasons in your life. For a lot of us, those hardest seasons of our lives that we've been through were probably in some ways initiated, not probably, but some of y'all were probably initiated by poorly chosen words, right? Relationships that were broken, things that were said at work that shouldn't have been said, you know, things that we said about ourselves that maybe weren't true. Like we can trace them back that like so many of our big struggles in life are because we haven't been able to quite get control of this little piece of ourselves. And it shapes the world around us. It creates the world that we find ourselves in. And so are we going to be good stewards of that? How do we use it well? Because the implications and the impact of it are so, so big, right? You look at these little candles burning down right here. And you imagine like if we just walked outside with that and leaned it over in the forest back there, it's been raining a lot. So today it might not be as bad, but like there's a situation where like, right, it just can turn into that really, really quickly. And we say this really small thing just put in the right spot at the right time can lead to total destruction of a mountain, right? We say it can just move and it can ruin homes. It can ruin lives. It can get so out of control so quick and move from something that we can control and like, blow out to something that we can align our whole community around trying to put out and cannot stop. Right? So our words are powerful and he sees this and he keeps on going. He says, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of sea creatures are being tamed and yet we have not been able to tame this tongue by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You see, when we get it for what it is, we start to respect it a lot more. And we don't just get comfortable with it. We don't get used to it. But we say, God, how do we use this to best honor you? How do we realize that this is never going to just default to a place where I don't have to worry about it anymore? 
It's like this constant struggle. There's a few years ago that there was this um, event where a bunch of people had gathered and they had these tigers there and it was kind of a show and they were showing off and doing like stunts with the tigers. And one of the tigers went off script and um, ended up hurting somebody at the place. And so there was this newspaper headline that says, Tiger goes wild and hurts these people and kind of lays out this whole story. And there's this comedian who brought this newspaper up and he said, it says the tiger went wild and all those things. He said, no, the tiger didn't go wild. He said, the tiger went tiger. He's like, that's what tigers do, right? Like, that's how they operate. Like, that's what it is. That's what it does. And so when we say, oh gosh, I, you know, I lost control of my mouth. It's like, no, that's what it does, right? And so it's like, we always have to be aware that its default mode is not what we want it to be. And so then he keeps going. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and our father. And with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. He says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig bear tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So it's like our words are the overflow of our heart. And so what goes on here dictates what comes out here. And when we realize the value and the power that we have of what comes out of here, we begin to get way more serious about it. And so as we look at this, right, um, I don't know about you, but like I said earlier, my default is never, and, and, and this is something I struggle with all the time. I had an old professor who said, preach from your weakness, you'll never run out of material, right? And so like, th- this is like a struggle for me, right? Because I, for a long time, I used to say, you know, God had just given me a critical eye to see how to fix things and how to order things better. And so I got to the place where every room I'd walk in, I just would like look for inefficiencies, look for problems, look at how we could fix it and do it better. And I'd be like, aren't I helpful? And then as I've, you know, my family's grown up and I've spent more time with my wife, it's very clear that's not helpful, right? Like that, that's not the most helpful thing. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of with our words that we lead with love, Right? And when we start to lead with love in our words and we begin to see things like, sure, there is a place for correction. Sure, there is a place for all these other things, but it starts from this place of gratitude. It starts from this place of seeing the good. It starts from this place of worship and giving thanks for all that's around us. And when we lead with those things, we start to see more of those things and all the other things begin to find their proper place. And so as we look at this, right, my, my heart defaults to, to four things and I think yours may as well. One of the places that I find my heart always seems to default is to criticism, right? Um, this idea that like, I just want to find what's better. I can figure out how to make it better and I've convinced myself over time that that's actually like an asset, right? But no, really, it, it's not. And one thing that I've really learned, hard, really learned in a big way that God's taught me over the last couple of years is this idea of don't criticize what we don't understand. And if we seek first to understand so often when we say, you know, you need to be doing, when we really understand why they're doing, it shapes our perspective. And so often we hear this phrase, right? Especially in our cultural narrative with news media and all these things right now. I don't understand how anybody could, right? And we, and we, foot, we say that phrase, well, what if we did seek to understand, right? And if we did seek to understand, I think it would start to change our words and they would move from critical to a little bit more compassion. Um, another thing that I, that I find myself defaulting to a lot is this idea of lying, right? Proverbs 12, 22, it says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. And so as we talk about that, right, it doesn't mean I just like walk around lying about everything. But there is this sense where it's so easy to just nudge the truth just a little bit to make ourselves look better, doesn't it? There's this sense that sure we lie with our words, but also the image that we try to put out about who we are. There's this sense of like truthfulness permeating out of every sense of us, 
right? And so when we look at that, um, one of the disciplines that I have in my life is um, just a spiritual discipline that kind of helps keep me centered is we're obviously a part of a Methodist church. And there's a guy named John Wesley who was started this movement of the Methodist church, right? And the Methodist church is actually kind of a joking term because people would joke about this Wesley guy because he had a method for everything. And so the word Methodist was really kind of like, oh, one of those crazy Methodists who has a plan for every single thing and how you do everything. And so structure was a really big deal to him. And so as he walked through this, he always had these 21 questions. You can just Google them if you're interested, but it's John Wesley's self-examination questions. In the first three questions, I have a hard time getting past because they're always diving into the way that we speak and the words that we share. And the first one he asks is, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? And we start to do that work in ourselves and say, no, am, am I really continually trying to say words that I twist a little bit to just make me look sound better? Or is there really this sense of, no, these are the places where I'm struggling. I'm willing to admit that. I'm willing to not have to put up a front before you because I have my peace and security in who Jesus is, not in my accomplishments. Right? And it starts to change us. The second one is, am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate? And then the third one is, do I confidently pass on to another what is told to me in confidence? So as we sit with those words, right, and as we wrestle with that, like, and we start to do this introspection, it really helps us to realize just how important it is and how easily just a small turn of the rudder can change course of the whole ship and how important it is to pay good attention to them. Um, another one is gossip. Proverbs 17, 4, wrongdoers eagerly listen to gossip and liars pay close attention to slander. And so um, quick show of hands. How many of you have been gossiped about? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you liked it? Okay, right? Like, I mean, like, really, like, it's like one of those things, so obvious, right? Like, we know that, but yet there's this thing where we always rationalize, well, this time's different, this time's okay, it's me, so it's different, right? And we want to make all those situations and circumstances, but again, just a small tweak of that rudder changes course of the whole ship, and so how do we keep control of this? And then number four that I kind of tend to default to a lot is complaining. And in Philippians chapter two, it says, do everything without grumbling, complaining, or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. You know, I read somewhere the other week that said, um, we live in a culture of complaint. And at the root of that culture of complaint is this sense that we are owed something. And as I've started to wrestle with that, um, that's been something that God's really been starting to shape in my heart and it dictates a lot of my words because when I feel like I'm owed lots of things, um, that changes the words that come out of, my heart, out of my mouth because the condition of feeling like I'm owed a lot of things is a heart condition, right? And what flows out of my mouth are the words based on the condition of my heart. You see, when I just feel like I'm owed perfect service everywhere I go because I paid a little money for it, Right? Every meal that's two minutes late causes words to flow out of my heart of entitlement. Right? Sometimes folks say, well, I, I, I live here in Santa Rosa Beach, so I shouldn't have to deal with traffic. Right? It's like an entitlement condition right? that overflows in our heart with words. And you can start to fill in the blank of all the things that we find ourselves complaining about. But when we really start complaining to do that kind of spiritual introspection work and say, God, what is it that I think I'm owed here? that is so disrupting my spirit about this situation that my heart is getting offline of what you would have for me to do. And the words that are overflowing right now are not words of grace. They are not words of love. They are not words of mercy, but they're words of judgment. They're words of condemnation. They're words of expectations on others for whatever reason we decide that we can place on them. 
And so when we start complaining, I think it's a really good spiritual exercise to say, really, what, what is it that I feel like I'm owed here? And it starts to change our perspective. And it starts to change our words, which starts to change our world. And so as we look at this um, and all of these things, um, we're not owed anything. But yet we get the grace of God in our lives. We get the undeserved compassion, grace, and mercy from Jesus And when we see that for what it is, it changes our heart. And when our heart is changed, it begins to change our words and we begin to see the world differently. So there's this little story. We're going to take communion as we close this morning. There's this little story in Luke chapter eight, verse 43 to 48. And and in this story, I'm just going to tell it to you. I'm not going to read it to you because I think it's, there's a lot happening in, in this story. And I think it gives us a glimpse into who God is, who we are, what happens in communion, what we're owed, how it shapes our heart, how it shapes our responses. So in this story, you have this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she has every reason to criticize. She has every reason to complain. She has every reason to be frustrated. She has every reason to say all of this gossip about all the doctors who the scripture says she went to, took her money and never helped her. Right? She'd been wronged in every way. She had every right to be frustrated with God. She had every right to be frustrated with the people around her. She had all of this frustration in life that did not go her way. And there's this sense of 12 years of long suffering, right? 12 years of waking up every day, getting to complain, I wish this was different. Then she hears about this Jesus character. And Jesus is, is making this way through town and she decides, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to encounter him and I want to get close to, to Jesus because maybe he can change this thing within me so that I can begin to live differently. And so she goes up to this crowd and, and the way the scriptures paint the scene is that it's a pretty chaotic scene. You know, you're almost man, managing like some sort of celebrity getting off a tour bus, going into a, con, into a concert or into a sporting event and like the swarm of people that are like there right as they get off the bus and everyone's like reaching for an autograph. Everybody's taking photos. Everybody's, you know, trying to get a good picture of them with the person, right? It's just kind of chaotic scene for a little bit. And so like put that image in this scene and in the middle of that scene, Jesus stops and he says, whoa, whoa, hold up. He says, somebody touched me. And the scripture says that, and it, and it goes out of its way, if you read this in, in the passage in its context there, it goes out of its way to say that she reached out and she just touched this little tassel that was hanging off the back of Jesus's robe at the time. And he stops and he says, whoa, somebody touched me. And Peter, who's always like good for like a little sarcasm, if you read him right, he's like, uh, yeah, someone touched you. Look around. Right? And he just like says it, like almost just like that. He's like, yeah, somebody touched you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 somebody touched me. And so then there's this whole interaction and this woman speaks up and Jesus encounters her and they begin to talk and he asks her and he says, well, and as it ends, essentially Jesus says to her, he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Okay, and that's like the, the ending words that get to create this woman's world after this encounter with Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And so for us, as we go to take communion this morning, what's so interesting about that story is she never touches Jesus. She touches the thing that Jesus touches. And in that moment, she experiences this transformation and she begins to see all that she has is grace. Through faith, she touches out and reaches out and grabs hold of Christ. And he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, when we talk about theology around communion, what happens there, right? There's some people at one end of the spectrum, and they'll, they'll use a big fancy word called transubstantiation. 
Okay, and if you're in the Catholic church before, been around that, you may recognize that word. And it's this idea that when we take these elements, they're like literally the body and blood of Christ. Like something happens in that moment and like there is a transformation and that's what we take into our bodies. And then you go to like the complete other end of the spectrum over here, right? And when you get to the other end of this spectrum, they would say like the opposite of transubstantiation. They'd say, we're eating a crusty old wafer that we bought on amazon.com with some, you know, juice in there. And like, you know, we just remember and we give thanks this morning. And it's important and it matters and it's spiritual, but it's really just an act of remembrance, right? Like that's just really all it is. But for us in this, in this Methodist world that we live in, this theology, this Wesleyan mindset, the, the phrase that we use around communion, I just love it so deeply. It says it's a holy mystery. Right? There's this sense that maybe it doesn't like actually become the body and blood, but, but it's more than just bread and juice, right? And it's like somehow my, my um, sacramental theology, I hate saying that because it makes me sound like I'm so smart, right? My sacramental theology professor, a guy named Bob Stamps, he, he told this story about this woman, right? And when he talks about it, he says what happens in that story is she reaches out and she touches the tassel and she touches the thing that God is touching. And it's like when we have this holy mystery of communion, it's like we take these elements in, it's like we're touching the thing that God has blessed. We're touching the thing, it's like we meet God in this moment in this extremely unique way. And as we take these elements this morning, right, like it's powerful. I had some people come up to me after the first service and said, hey, you know, I was in tears taking communion this morning because I hadn't been able to do it in the last year. So there's just something about like when we, when we do this, when we set ourselves apart, what, because what is happening is like we are coming to this feast. We are coming to this banquet. We are taking part in this meal that Christ offers to all of us. And when we come to it, like it is an unlimited buffet, right? But not one of those bad truck stop buffets where the food's bad. It's like good food and you get to eat as much of it as you want, right? And he says, you come and feast at this table. Come and just partake in the goodness of God. And so you see this morning when our hearts get a little conditioned and get a little sideways, when we feel like we want to keep this in control, we want to see it all in the right perspective, we want to understand it. It's like we take these elements, we encounter God, and he says, receive my peace. In spite of all your mistakes, in spite of all your junk, in spite of all your brokenness, because of Jesus, we are made right before God. And we get to celebrate that. And you see, when we see that for what it is, just like the folks in Acts, how can we not go and talk about it? You see, when we understand what happens here in this meal, when we understand the grace that's been given to us, it's like you are forgiven. You are healed. Go in peace. And when we leave in peace, we don't leave entitled. We don't leave like we're owed something. We don't leave in this place of I'm better than everybody else and playing this game. We leave from this place all partaking together at this heavenly feast that's set before us by our heavenly father. And we get to feast at that banquet as God's people receiving the grace that is so freely given to us. And we go and live in that reality. You see, when we see that for what it is, it changes our heart. When our hearts are changed, our words change. And when we see the goodness of God, we can't help but speak it. You have been listening to sermon audio from Good News Church in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. We have Sunday services at 815, 930, and 11. If you are interested in finding more information on our church or ways to get further involved, visit goodnewschurch.life. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you soon.